The reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. But the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One that has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if you cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. How was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. This is God's word. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Phil. I'm one of the, the staff members here. And we are looking at a difficult chapter tonight that deals with an issue which is very controversial in our, uh, our culture. So we're going to ask for God's help for me as I speak and for all of us as we listen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word does speak about all of life. And Father, wherever we're at on these issues tonight, we pray that you would help us, give us insight, enable us to understand and recognize truth that we might live lives that flourish in the real world in which you've placed us. And we ask this for your glory amongst us. Amen. 
Look, when it comes to, to matters of marriage and sex, I imagine that there'll be a number of different groups, if you like, or places that we find ourselves at in this room. There'll be some here who are happily married or happily planning marriage. There'll be others here who are single and very happy with the freedom we've got. Uh, There'll be a number here who would love to get married. And amongst that group, I guess there'd probably be some who feel something between anger and bitterness that God hasn't yet done what we thought he would on that front. And I guess there'll be some here who are married. And frankly, we are bitterly regretting that fact. But there's probably the largest group here are just thinking, really, again, do we have to look at this stuff? Seriously. Yeah, I told you. Uh, well, to you, I say, look, I'm sorry, but it's in 1 Corinthians. We just teach through the Bible. If you've got an issue with Paul, take it up with him when you get to heaven. But uh, we're just following through what the Bible says, and it happens to crop up a lot in 1 Corinthians. And don't be naive. Don't be naive. We may be fed up with or feel like we're fed up with hearing about marriage, sex, singleness type stuff in church. But you're hearing about it every day in the world. Our sex-obsessed culture is always talking about this. And the question you have to ask yourself is, who do I want informing my mind as I think about uh, such central matters to humanity? Do I want my attitudes and desires shaped by the world or God's word? If you're trying to work out how to win a Rugby World Cup, do you ask the England rugby team? No. Why? Because they're frankly useless at the moment. If you're trying to work out wise investment strategies, do you ask the 2006 Lehman Brothers Bank Board of Directors? No, because they went bust. If you're trying to work out a healthy attitude to matters of relationships, marriage and sex, do you ask a culture where sexually transmitted infections are reaching epidemic levels, where divorce is increasing every year, and where it's seen as perfectly normal behaviour for 11-year-olds to text naked pictures of themselves to each other at school. God is the creator, the inventor, the designer of our bodies and of our relationships. And when we turn to him, to his word... We learn how the creator tells us we can flourish and live lives to the full. And so we're wise if we look at God's word. Uh, And see, whether you're a convinced Christian or pretty cynical about uh, Christian things, I don't think that any of us would sit here and say, our culture's obviously got the answers on this one. So I would just at least hear out what the Bible has to say. At least hear out, because it's clear that we are confused about these things in our secular culture. So isn't it worth just listening to see whether the Bible has to say something sensible about this? Now, this isn't the only chapter in the Bible that deals with marriage. This doesn't say everything there is to be said about the the topic of marriage and relationships and sex. Uh, Rather, uh, Paul's addressing matters that the Corinthians have written to him. They've written to him a letter you can see in uh, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. So he's replying to specific questions. So this won't give us a full kind of, this is everything the Bible teaches about marriage, of course. It will give us a a few things in depth. Um, And the second half of the chapter is all about um, uh, singleness and the blessings of singleness. The first half of the chapter is all about marriage and the blessings of marriage. So after Christmas, we'll be looking at the the second half of the chapter. But tonight, we're looking at um, the issues of marriage and sex. 
And we'll start at verse 1, which seems like a good place to start. And the first thing we see is that sex in marriage is good in God's eyes. That's verses 1 to 9. Look with me at verses 1 to 2. If you've closed your Bibles, want to open them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, for the, marriage, uh, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. So the second half of the verse, he's quoting what they've obviously written to him. Um, although, I have to be honest, it's a slightly unhelpful translation here. Although it can mean marry, it's, uh, the word is literally touch. And it's almost always a euphemism for sex. Uh, so what it really is, is um, now for the matters you wrote about, you said, and I quote, it's good for a man not to have sex with his wife. But some poor Bible translator got a little bit shy. Can't write that. And so just put in marry, which is a bit of a shame. But um, but there we go. So Paul responds in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And again, the word have is a, is a word that's usually for, for sex. We use it the same way in our culture, to have somebody. Uh, and in chapter 5, verse 1, it's the, the word for where someone is sleeping with their father-in-law, their mother-in-law, um, and it says they've had their mother-in-law. So that's what's going on. Step back. Why on earth would Paul have to write to married couples to say, you need to have sex? Why on earth would Paul be responding to a question, telling the Corinthians, you need to, you need to have sex if you're married? Why would the, why would the married couples in Corinth not be having sex. I mean, it's not like they had Netflix to distract them back then. So what, you know, what is, what is going on? Now, there are background reasons to do with Plato and a view of the human body and the spirit, but frankly, I actually think something much more basic is going on. Corinth is sex-saturated and sex-obsessed. And it's not just an out-there problem in Corinth. As we've seen in 1 Corinthians, it's in the church. I mean, you know, people are sleeping with their mothers-in-law in church. It's a, it's a fairly crazy sex-obsessed place. And so you, you can understand that what, what's happened is that, that some of the Corinthian church are living pretty debauched lives and others are looking around and seeing all this sexual immorality and they're putting two and two together and getting 347, which is easily done um, if you're not very good at maths. And, and basically what they seem to have said is, look, sex is just, it causes, so many people seem to fall into sexual sin. The, the most godly thing to do if you really want to be spiritual, surely it's just to avoid sex altogether. It's far too powerful an urge. If we want to be spiritual and come close to God, then married, single, whatever, just flee from sex. Seems sensible. And we've got to be honest at this point, the Christian church has gone this way a number of times in history. Uh, so the famous theologian Augustine in the 4th century, uh, he, was, um, he was an absolutely debauched young man sex obsessed and when he was converted he just couldn't see sex as a positive thing and so he he wrote strongly against it others have taught that um, original sin is passed through sexual intercourse and therefore sex is bad or that even that the 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 fruit in the garden of eden is a euphemism for adam and eve having sex but you kind of think if god didn't mean for human beings ever to have sex he did make a couple of fairly obvious errors when he you know, made the physical body. It's, it is clear that that's a, it's an odd interpretation. It's never supported in the Bible. Sex is bad. May have been a teaching that the church has fallen into, but it was never a teaching in the Bible. And so Paul says emphatically, no, don't swing the pendulum from uh, people having sex with absolutely anybody they want to, to all sex is bad. He says, don't, don't, you don't react to something that's wrong by, by a radical swing the other way. You come back to, 
to the center line, to the plumb line of God's scripture, and you look for the truth that's here. There are two kinds of sex in the Bible, and only two. There is consensual sex between a man and a woman in marriage, and there is everything else, and everything else is sexual immorality. But sex within marriage, consensual sex within marriage between a man and a woman is good and godly according to the Bible. And no matter how depraved and confused our culture gets, the church must not allow culture to drag us away from that truth. We mustn't react away from what the Bible actually says. So Paul writes to correct this super spiritual swing in Corinth and to tell Christian couples sex in marriage is good. And the argument continues in verses 3 and 4. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Now that the husband uh, owned the wife's body, that her body belonged to him was pretty standard in that culture. But to teach that the husband's body belonged to the wife, that was revolutionary. And the Bible, Christianity, led to a radical improvement in the rights and the status of women, and always has done. And notice that it's not, and this is a mistake I think we make in our culture, it's not that husband and wife have rights over each other. I will have my conjugal rights with you tonight, my darling. I demand my rights. It's not like that. It's We have duties to each other, not rights over each other. It's always the position in the Bible. I don't have rights over people. I have duties to them. It's a much healthier culture when we think less of my rights and more of my duties to serve others. And so, husband and wife should seek to use their time, their money, their conversation, their affection and their bodies to serve each other. Not to look to be served by the other. The total switch around of our attitude that's required if we're to be Christian. Again, uh, verses 5 to 6 is another couple of verses that I think we often misread. Uh, Do not deprive each other, he continues, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now this is not a a command or even a recommendation that uh, married couples should abstain from sex uh, for periods of time so that they can pray together. Paul is saying, oh, I mean, if you really want to, Paul is basically saying, oh, stop being so super spiritual. Okay, look, I'm not going to ban you from doing it, but if you, if you insist that you, we're, you know, we're going to have a fast from sex so that we can, we can pray, yeah, whatever. I know what's, look, do it, but don't, only do it for a short time. You're not as godly as you think you are. You'll only end up looking at porn or going to prostitutes. So I'm not going to ban you from doing it, but only do it for a short time. There is this sort of super spirituality that's floating around in Corinth, and that's pointless. It doesn't actually lead to godly behavior, as Paul recognizes here. Usually it just ends up in people turning to porn and other stupid things. So abstaining from sex is not the path to spiritual maturity for a married couple. It doesn't make you more godly. Verse 7, he continues, I wish all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, there are various ways people understand this verse. But I I think, in essence, he's saying, look, um, I'm single and I'm content with the way God has made me. And I wish people would, uh, would share that. But look, we've all got different gifts. Don't pretend you're what you're not. 
If you don't have uh, the contentment that I have as a single man, then don't pretend you do if you're married. Uh, Be realistic with who you are. Okay. Married couples here, you need to be sensible. You need to be sensible. Ensure that sex is frequent enough that you're not leaving one or both of you dangerously open to sexual temptation. To which some might ask, well, hang on a second. Uh, don't we tell single people that they need to learn self-control? Why, why don't you just say to married people? Why doesn't Paul just say married people exercise some self-control over your body? And there is some truth to that. There's a lot of truth in that. And if you don't learn sexual self-control now, to the single people here, if you get married, you will fall sexually when you're married. If you don't learn self-control while you're single, you will fall when you're married. But there is an important phrase that's repeated frequently in the book of Song of Songs, which is a love poem, a beautiful love poem in the Bible. And it says this, do not awaken or arouse love until it so desires. Which is basically to say it's a whole lot easier to stamp out a spark than a raging fire. Don't nurture, don't fan into flames uh, those sexual urges. Because once they get out of control, once they become strong even, not out of control but just strong, it's much, much harder to resist them. Once you're used to having sex regularly, he says, it's much harder to, to stop than to just learn control before it is a regular pattern of life. And that, I think, explains the the advice in the next two verses, verses 8 to 9. Now, to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, he will set out the advantages of being single in the second half of the chapter. Uh, But for those who have been accustomed to having sex, that's what he's saying here, whether uh, widows whose um, husband or wife has died or couples who've been sleeping together and then they've been converted or they've just decided to start taking uh, the Bible seriously as they follow Christ and so have stopped being sexually immoral. He says, look, it, it is very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And so Paul's advice to them is, look, get married. Now he knows not everybody who would like to get married and struggles with temptation can. He's aware that that's a serious issue, but he says, if you can, then, then do. And the most obvious application, I think, of that is to, to unmarried couples who are struggling. Now, do not marry somebody unsuitable just because you can't control yourselves. That would be incredibly stupid. But if you're struggling to p- stay pure, if you're a couple and you're struggling to stay pure, then Paul's advice would be firstly, flee from sexual immorality, as we saw last week. Run away. Don't tell me you're struggling when you're going on holiday together, when you're spending, you know, staying over at each other's houses, when you're uh, spending loads of time together on your own late at night. Don't tell me you're struggling when you're being idiots. Flee from sexual immorality. And if you can, get married. Don't put off marriage because you know you want to save up money for some massive unrealistic wedding and you take the risk of uh, falling into sexual sin between now and a year and a half's time when you've saved up for it so why would you do that godliness matters honoring god matters more than having um, white horses and swans tow you into your wedding (laughs) on your golden chariot you know seriously just get married honoring god matters more 
You can have your, your swans and your white horses for a, a year down the line, but get married. Um, I, don't ask me. I, I don't read wedding magazines, but I imagine that sort of thing goes on. Um, Honouring God is what matters. So seek to honour God in the matter of sexual purity. Sex is not the main point of marriage and pleasure is not the only purpose of sex. But sex is one of God's crucial gifts to develop intimacy and to, to bond together a married couple. And so couples who are married work at sex life. Don't neglect it. Life is busy and stressful and tiring in London. And so you need to actually be sensible about your schedules. Make sure that you have energy and time for each other. Because sex within marriage is good in God's eyes. It's a recipe for disaster if you spend more time talking with your colleagues than you do with your spouse about real stuff in life. It's a recipe for disaster if when you're together you spend more time listening to conversations on TV shows than having conversations yourself. You need to keep working out and growing in intimacy. Sex with a marriage is good in God's eyes. And then secondly, and in one sense, the, the, the next verses are simpler. Um, divorce is bad in God's eyes. So verses 10 to 16. Let's look at the, the whole of these and then we'll, uh, we'll pick them apart. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the believer leave, unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We all know that divorce is a big problem in modern London. We all know the statistics. What surprised me is that it may have been an even bigger problem back in Corinth. I was very surprised that historians say that divorce was the most common way for a marriage to end back then in large parts of the Roman Empire. There was an inscription on a gravestone from around the time when uh, 1 Corinthians was written that said, Uncommon are marriages which last so long, brought to an end by death, not broken by divorce. But it was our happy lot to be prolonged to the 41st year without estrangement. Paul gets the culture we're in. But he commands married couples, stay married. Now there is not time now to look at everything the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. And they are painful questions and they're not out there questions. They'll be painful questions for many of us in this room. But I do want to look at what the headline in this text is, which is very simply, although divorce and remarriage are sometimes possible, divorce is always a tragedy. It is always a tragedy. It is always destructive and it is always contrary to God's ideal. Why is the Bible so down on divorce? I mean, it's hard being human. We're flawed and fallible. It's hard to make relationships work. So why is the Bible so down on it? Well, because 
throughout the Bible. And you see in Ezekiel 16. And then uh, in the book of Hosea. And Ephesians 5. And then right at the end of Revelation. Marriage is a picture, a great big visual illustration of God's faithful, passionate, committed, undying love for us as people. And so every time a Christian couple divorces, they tell a lie about God's commitment to his people. And that is why God is down on divorce in the Bible, because he would not divorce you. So if you're a Christian, show it by committing to your marriage, not abandoning when things get tough, verses 10 to 11. God can turn around and bring life and joy to any failing marriage. When you take a failing, struggling marriage and you turn to God and ask for help, all the resources of the creator God of the universe, all the power of his Holy Spirit is at your disposal. Don't lose hope. Look, a couple of quick comments um, as we go through. First, there are uh, the the slightly bizarre comments at the beginning of uh, verses 10 and 12. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Verse 12, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. What's going on? Is Paul saying some bits of scripture are more authoritative than others? Not at all. 2 Peter 3.16, the apostles recognized the teaching of Paul was as authoritative. Uh, Peter talks about them in 2 Peter 3.16 as other scriptures. Same level, same authority, same word of God whether he's quoting Jesus directly or whether it's Paul writing. So there's no, there's no ranking of scripture as if red-letter Bibles are a very bad idea. I'm not into book burning, but I'm saying they're a bad idea. They give us the idea that some bits of scripture have more authority than others. They don't. It's all God's word. Rant over. Right. The point, though, is back when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, the Gospels haven't yet been written down. So Paul can't say in verse 10, to the, un- to the married I give this command... Uh, In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, he can't say that because Mark hasn't written chapter 10. So instead he just says, not I, um, but the Lord, as in I'm quoting Jesus directly. That's all that's going on. Now, verses uh, 12 to 16, the issue is Christians who are married to non-Christians. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Paul is clear in 2 Corinthians 6, if you're a Christian, only marry a Christian. To be married is to be one flesh. And how can you be perfectly united with somebody when the most fundamental question of the universe, who is Jesus Christ, is something that sees you on the opposite sides of the great divide. And so in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, only marry a Christian. But if you find yourself um, in the position where you are married to a non-Christian, what should you do? And again, I think there are probably two opposite groups in 1 Corinthians, in the church at Corinth that he's writing to. Firstly, there are those who are in a difficult marriage and they've become a Christian and they're thinking, this gives me an out. You know, my partner's not a Christian and it's difficult. They don't like me going to church on Sunday. They can't stand the music I play. Um, You know what? I should just leave them. There are lots of lovely Christian girls at church I could marry instead. And he says, no, 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 you stay married. You show commitment to your promises. On the other hand, I suspect that there are the the super spiritual bunch at Corinth. And Corinth always seems to have these two, the the utterly worldly and the super spiritual. And the the super spiritual are thinking, well, I'm married to an unbeliever and that sort of taints me. I'm not as, as 
as spiritual. I, I can't be as close to God if I'm, if I'm kind of hitched to an unbeliever. And Paul says, no, stay married. Verse 14 to 15. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Which raises probably more questions for us than it answers, doesn't it? Uh, what's going on? Uh, I think sanctified. Look, it's a word in the Bible that means set apart. So you, you sanctify something. You say, look, this is only used for this good, noble purpose. So in the Old Testament, you sanctify stuff when you only use it in the temple for God. And I think the point is, look, he's not saying you get saved by being married to a Christian. You know, If that was the case, then I'd say, um, look, let's do bigamy. Marry as many people as you can because it saves people and they get to heaven. You know, Marry 30 people and then they're all saved. Fantastic. It doesn't say that. That doesn't happen, so don't do it. Um, just to be clear. But it does change the, the position of somebody. So just as uh, children born to, uh, to Christian parents, they're not saved by being born. You can't be saved by your relationship to a human, whether you share a house with them or they're your parents or you're married to them. You're only saved by your relationship to Jesus Christ, by trusting in him. But children born to Christian parents are brought along to church and taught the gospel. They're they're set apart in a sense, sanctified. And the same is often the case for Christian spouses and married to a non-Christian. That they're they're brought along. They, They share in some of the blessings that there are in the gospel because they, they're part of the community. And so he says, don't leave them. Stay with them. Pray for them. Show that becoming a Christian makes you a far better husband or wife than you ever were before. And pray, verse 16, that they will be saved by God just as you have been saved by God. However, verse 15 does say, if the non-Christian husband or wife abandons you because you've become a Christian, well, then you are free. You're free to remarry. Now, in a room this size, I'm guessing there'll be some of us uh, who are divorced and others of us are thinking very, very seriously. Well, dreaming would be the right term about getting divorced. We would love to. Sometimes it might be the right thing to do. And sometimes it may not even be my choice. It's something that's done to me. But look, the truth is that most of the time, too often, divorce is simply an act of unbelief. I get fed up with the struggle and the disappointment. It just saps my life to be constantly bickering. Living in a war where I'm sharing a trench with the enemy and it's just wearing. And life is just misery. Day after difficult, bickering day. And so I stopped believing God could ever redeem my marriage. (laughs) I stopped believing that the Jesus who rose Lazarus from the dead could ever bring life and joy and laughter to my marriage. And so I start seeing divorce as my only hope, my only option. Or I stop believing that the eternal paradise that's coming, that God has uh, in heaven for us, the new creation, could ever make up for decades of faithfully serving God by being faithful in a difficult marriage. I cannot imagine that it would be worth it, that anything could make up for this. Because, well, I've bought the lie that if I don't get it now, 
I've missed out entirely. That nothing in the future could ever make up for not finding fulfillment in relationship now. And so I start looking around and wondering whether I might find that fulfillment in marriage to somebody else. And as a church, we need to be much better at talking with one another and helping one another in marriage. Married or single, we need to pray for one another. Marriage is under pressure in our culture. And we all need to pray that God would protect and flourish the marriages in this church so that the marriages in this church are a beautiful witness, a testimony, a a sales pitch to the world that life under Jesus is really worth living. No marriage is perfect and we will all struggle, so don't be stupid and pretend otherwise. Be honest. Find people here you can be honest with and pray together and share your struggles with. Find friends who are married, friends who are single that you can talk to and be involved in your life so it doesn't have to get to crisis point before you start discussing some of the niggles. And if you're fed up with the struggles and you're sitting here tonight and you've pretty much lost hope, please don't go home like that. Please come and talk to somebody. Talk to and pray with a friend, a small group leader or myself or one of the other members of staff. Don't walk out of here believing the lie. Come and talk and pray with somebody. Uh, Just briefly as we close, the last section is actually the heart of the chapter. Uh, We're going to deal with it quite briefly though, verses 17 to 24. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was free when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become the slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation that God has called him. Circumcision and slavery are basically illustrations of two of the great social divisions of the day which had a huge impact on your life. And Paul basically says, look, they're nothing. Keeping God's commands is actually all that matters. Or in other words, whether you get married or don't get mad, actually it's, it's a very little consequence eternally. Really. Marriage is just a copy of the real marriage between Christ and his people, the church. There won't be marriage in, in paradise, in perfection, In the place where God's best gifts are, there won't be marriage. Because marriage is just a shadow. So why would you have that when reality has come? What matters, what matters most is, will I serve God where I am now? You don't have to pretend you like being single if you don't. You don't have to pretend your marriage is happy if it's not. But you do need to get on with living the life that God has given you rather than withdrawing into a fantasy about the life you wish you had. If only I was married. That stability and support. Think of how much better I could serve God. If only I was single without that distraction and the stress and the demands of my my wife or my husband. Think how, how much more time I would have to serve God. Don't live in fantasies that just grow dissatisfaction with real life. Don't put your life on hold until things change. The life you have now... Today, that is the life that God has given you. 
This is where God wants you right now. This is where he's put opportunities for you to serve him. This is where the action is, as far as God is concerned, right now for you today. So serve him. There is no more spiritual way of life, married or single. What matters is, am I obeying Jesus Christ in the life God has given me today? Not what would I do if my life changed tomorrow? This is what Jesus, the single man, the most fully human who ever there was, taught us. It's what he shows us. As we follow him, serve God, and know the fulfillment that Jesus knew. And the irony is, when we take our eyes off what we hope life would be, and we get on with serving God and giving ourselves to serve others now, we find a depth of joy and fulfillment that never comes from seeking after things that we want. Now look, there's lots of issues uh, in a passage like this. Uh, There's lots of things it touches on and it, um, as I said in a previous talk, it it may feel like we've been running along just picking off scabs, painful scabs as we've gone. Uh, As I said, please don't go home feeling disgruntled or unhappy. Please come and talk to somebody. Please talk to me. Please bring these things to God. To the God who raised Lazarus from the dead and can bring life wherever we are. To the God whose perfect son Jesus lived a free and happy life as a single person. And to the God who one day will bring us into a perfect relationship with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Father, there will be uh, painful issues raised by your word tonight for many of us. We thank you that your word doesn't shy away from that. We thank you that your word does show us the richest, fullest way to live. And we pray, Father, that as we work these things through, that you would give us courage to be honest with each other, that we would be a a church where people do not wear masks, but where you can be truthful. And Father, we pray that uh, we would be good at supporting and helping one another, so that married or single... Uh, We will be a church where we bear one another's burdens and where all of us look forward, most of all, to the day when we will be perfectly united with our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Help us to fix our eyes on that day so that we might be free to serve you today.